Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Harvard Professor Emeritus Biologist Dr. E.O. Wilson is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner who is known as the father of sociobiology. That's the social organization of animals. His special interest is ants, but he is concerned about the future of all of the world's species. He will be honored this Friday at the St. Louis Zoo as recipient of the 22nd Whitney Harris World Ecology Center Award. I am pleased to have a chance to talk to him by phone. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Let's talk about your concerns about species reduction. I was surprised to learn that there are 10 million critters on on this earth. What's happening right now? Well, what's happening is that uh, we're waking up to the fact that although we've already described during the uh, two centuries since uh, Carl Linnaeus began the process of discovering and describing species, uh, we have accumulated a roster of about well, a little more than 2 million species, but the actual number estimated is around 10 million species, give or take a million. In other words, we've just begun to explore life on this planet. But their populations are being diminished, correct? Uh, the species are going extinct at somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times faster than before the coming and spread of humanity, probably closer to 100 times, but at the same time, accelerating, getting higher and higher. By the end of the century, uh, it's easy to predict that um, unless something is done, half of Earth's living diversity will be gone. Is it our fault? Of course how so? Yes, it's all our fault. I beg your pardon? I say, yes, it is all our fault. Uh, how so? Uh, they, I, you can't find an asteroid uh, that's hit anywhere to take uh, to give it a count. But uh, no, it's human activity has upped uh, the extinction rate to 100, more than 100 times. Your book, Half Earth, uh, has a very interesting and uh, some people call radical proposal for dealing with this situation by setting aside vast quantities of the planet for these various species. How, do, how does that work? Well, we call this the Half-Earth Project. It goes back to 1967, when a young uh, Princeton ecologist and I uh, devised what's called the theory of island biogeography, and we showed what the relationship is between area and the number of species of plants and animals uh, that can live on an island indefinitely. And from that, we deduced relationships rather precise, and they've been tested since uh, both by theory and also by field experiments uh, that uh, is indicates that uh, we need to put aside, shall we say, uh, 10% of the Earth's surface to save half of all the species, as half would be gone. Uh, but if we could put aside half of the area, uh, we could save, roughly in this first estimation, 85%. And that's what the goal is, half Earth project is what we're talking about here, and that is to get uh, 
the uh, humanity, or, you know, each country in turn, uh, but particularly those that have the richest biodiversity when it's possible, to put aside half of the earth, of the surface of the sea, and half of the land. And right away, just to blunt uh, a kind of gut reaction I'm sure we're getting from a at least part of our audience. No, we're not talking about moving um, the uh, anybody anywhere. Uh, we don't talk about uh, even changing economic practice anywhere. Uh, we can do this with people on the land if the half is wisely chosen uh, to include both the uh, numbers of species sensitivities and the sensitivity uh, on the one side and human uh, future on the other side. An analogy to this uh, is the successful program, which few have heard about, of the uh, National Natural uh, Landmark Program, uh, administered by the U.S. National Park Service. Uh, in which areas are designated that uh, in this country uh, uh, with exceptional historical and or uh, natural biolog- biological importance. That's, uh, there are some 500 of these uh, landmark areas, uh, varying greatly in size, and they've, uh, most of them have some people on them, uh, but they've been a great success in saving some of the most valuable uh, and biologically diverse parts of the country. How do you get the various species that you want to preserve and protect to these areas? I mean, just assuming that they're already there? You don't take anything anywhere. You just leave them alone. How do you set aside portions of the ocean? Uh, Well, that's already done. Uh, there are some, uh, widely, there are some 150 countries that have coast and therefore have uh, territorial waters. And most of those countries do have some restrictions on uh, harvesting or uh, taking over and modifying uh, the territorial waters uh, that uh, they are responsible for. And in those, and concentrating on the parts of the territorial water with a maximum amount of uh, the biological diversity, coral reef here, a ridge there, a sandy area with unusual diversity in the third place, and so on, uh, you can approach it. Uh, But here's another consideration. If we could get an agreement universal to harvest no longer in the open sea. Altogether, that makes up about half of the marine geography of the world. We can leave alone the open sea, the blue water, and not harvest from there any longer. Right now, it's treated, treated as a commons, as most would know, uh, that anybody can go into the open sea and take anything out they want. If we stop that, then Two independent studies have shown that the territorial waters output of fisheries and other marine life would 
greatly increased. Uh, that is, <clears throat> hands off the open sea, and your territorial waters will become more productive, including fisheries. Now, how could that be possible? Well, uh, the open seas have migration constantly going over on over long distances, and uh, the species that uh, are multiplying and traveling and dispersing in the open sea uh, also are increasing the, uh, the, the, the amount and the diversity of life within all the territorial waters. So it's not intuitively clear at first, but it turns out that that is the case. So take your choice. The seas can be, um, or half of the seas can be protected by individual nations themselves in their own self-interest, or somehow we could come to an agreement to leave the open sea alone from now on and profit all of the coastal cities that are responsible for exploitation of the open sea anyway would leave them better off. I've heard somewhere or read somewhere that man harvests a trillion fish a year from our oceans. Does that sound right to you? Uh, Would you repeat that, please? I've heard that man harvests a trillion, with a T, fish a year from our from our oceans. Does that sound Did right you to say you? A trillion. A fish? trillion. Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't heard that number, but it's entirely reasonable. Yeah. I mean, you can uh, you can get a big chunk of that just by uh, uh, saving a few uh, uh, sardine swarms. Yeah, that's... you're counting fish. That's right. Well, I would, I'd, I'd hate to have to start counting them, but I, I, I'll recommend the book. If people want to learn more about this, your book, Half Earth, to learn more about these proposals of yours. But I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about ants because I've heard you interviewed on NPR before, and I've been fascinated with the kinds of things that you've had to say about ants. What, what uh, generated your interest in, in ants? Uh, well, when I was uh, a little boy... Uh, in uh, the wilds of Alabama, I often lived in small towns and could get out and uh, roam around. I was an only child. That helped a lot. I got interested in nature, and I saw it as a great adventure. From a very early age, I began to collect butterflies, read every issue of the National Geographic I could, and dream of someday going on great trips into the jungles and exploring and finding new kinds of animals, a boyhood dream, Mm -hmm. Uh, except that I was able to live that dream. And as I went through high school, I uh, was preparing myself for studies in natural history. I thought that maybe I could become a ranger in a park. Maybe I could become an entomologist studying insects, uh, the kind who advises farmers on how to control pests and so on. Uh, somehow, I thought I could have a living, make a living when I grew up uh, in uh, the outdoors. The big thing was never, ever have to come in from the outdoors. I stayed with that. By the time I was ready to go to the school, the university, that is, the University of Alabama, uh, I uh, had decided that the really most interesting creatures of all out in the wild I'd been encountering were the ants. So why not just 
choose ants as the object of study, and I immediately became addicted, and the rest is a lifetime career devoted to ants. What about them made them so fascinating to you? Well, actually, I'm just working on a book right now. I just started it. It's going to be called Tales from the Ant World. And I tell that story. Uh, I was in um, the backyard of a house that we lived in in Decatur, Alabama. That's on the Tennessee River up in the northern part of the state. And uh, I'd already decided pretty much to uh, work on some other kind of insect. But in our backyard, I saw this stream of ants. It turns out that there were tens of thousands of them in a single colony, marching five to ten across in perfect formation or near perfect formation for an insect, across the yard, all in one direction. And I followed them over a back fence into the next yard. And they were continuing there, the column continued. And they continued on across that yard and out into a street, across the street. And then into a patch of woodland where they disappeared and I couldn't follow them. And I soon learned that what I was seeing was the march of the army ants. Army ants just get that far north. Uh, you can find big army ants with millions of workers uh, in the tropics. And I was later to see those many times. But here in northern Alabama, I actually found one of the northernmost army ants, and was able to watch its behavior and learn a great deal more about it as I, when I attended the University of Alabama. So that this was really a one childhood experience. Well, I was, a, you know, I was a high school senior, boyhood experience uh, that uh, persuaded me that here is an object worth serious study. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but my understanding from previous interviews I've heard with you, the ants in these colonies have very specific rules, very specific social orders, correct? That's right. They never make mistakes. The ones that made mistakes went extinct long ago. What kind of mistakes are we talking about? Well, I think, for example, uh, not spreading into areas which are not going to be changing as much in climate, by not uh, overeating the food that you're dependent on. And as you just got me started with that, <laughs> that's all the things you would ask or expect from a sensible human population. They did it by instinct. That is the ones that survived to be among us today. And they have leaders and followers and a societal makeup that is not unlike our own, I guess. You wouldn't believe the details. That they, uh, or our listeners would not believe the details uh, that, uh, that their evolution has gone into and in creating a machine, the ant colony, uh, that is uh, made for survival and reproduction. What, what would our planet be like if there were no ants? If you took away all the ants, uh, most of the land ecosystems from temperate forests down into the tropics on the land and on into the deserts, the ecosystems would collapse. Ants make up a big part 
of the biomass, that is the sheer mass of animal tissue on the land. And they play so many rural roles, many of them essential to the uh, continuing lives of other insects, plants, and animals. If you could remove them, heaven forbid, all those would collapse, or most of them would collapse, because uh, they would uh, have just simply lost uh, cogs and cables and holding parts, uh, the equivalent, that is, of their ecosystems in which they existed. I'm, I'm not quite, we've only got a minute left, I'm not quite sure I understand what they contribute that would cause systems to collapse. They're the principal predators. Uh, they make up um, more mass, doing more things, uh, capturing other insects, uh, serving plants for uh, protection and or nutriments, and so on and on and on. Uh, they're involved in most of the major functions of the land ecosystems. Uh, so, uh, And in some cases, there are no substitutes for what they do. And again, in 30 seconds, how many varieties of ants are there out there? 15,000. 15,000. 15,000 species, a little more than that. I was just talking with a couple of my fellow myrmecologists, that's what we're called, uh, at Harvard, I just got back in time for this interview, back to my home, uh, and uh, we were talking about how many ant species are there in the whole world. We know a little over 15,000 now. We've discovered and analyzed a little over 15,000, and we agreed that the actual number would likely be closer to 30,000. I've got it. I've There's got a lot to be done. Got to stop you there, Professor. We'll wait for that new book. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you, E.O. Wilson of Harvard. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.